Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland. This is a spot where nurses share their stories and their experiences to provide mentorship as well as help nurses and soon-to-be nurses just like yourself along the way. I hope you enjoy these episodes. Welcome to a very special episode, season three. I think it's going to be episode two of the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I am joined today with my students who wanted to express their last clinical day as a podcast episode. And I thought that was going to be the most amazing thing in the world. And although, you know, my name in the game is just do it and then beg for forgiveness. I actually ask questions, but I did so in a very nice way of saying, hey, I think this is a great idea. Why don't we try this out? to get the students involved. And the person that let me do it was like, you know what? I love creative learning. Let's try it out. So here we are. I'm joined today with how many? Six of us total. Two couldn't make it today and that's okay. So if everyone could introduce themselves, I don't know what your views look like, but Jaden, we'll start with you. And then whoever wants to go after that is, is more than welcome to. Do you want me to just say my name or more? Say whatever you want. Say um, your name, where you're from, and what nursing um, specialty that you're going to go into. How about um, that? I'm, I'm Jaden. I'm from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And then after graduation, I'll be working at Lehigh Valley Hospital on labor and delivery. Uh, I'm Sean. Uh, I'm from Langham, Pennsylvania. And uh, after graduation, I'll be working at Penn Medicine Alert Elementary Unit. I'm Isabel. I'm from Long Island, New York. And after graduation, I'm going into a cardiac IMC up in New Hampshire. I'm Lex. I'm from Sellersville in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And after graduation, I'll be working at Lehigh Valley Health Network's Cedar Crest Emergency Department. I'm Caitlin. I'm from Denver, Colorado, originally. And after graduation, I plan on attending grad school to obtain my family nurse practitioner degree. I'm Marina. I'm from Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, and after graduation, I'll be working on a medicine unit in North Carolina. Ooh. Bye-bye, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Rena's also shaking her head, yes. That so was I the asked, goal. Go ahead, what? That was the goal, to get out of Pennsylvania. <laughs> Someday, though, you'll come back. Everybody comes back to Pennsylvania. Doesn't matter when. Don't say that. <laughs> Why, we'll do you see. want to leave Pennsylvania, too, Lexi? Eventually, where, that's the goal, like Rena said. Where, where, <laughs> uh, where do you want to go? Any, anywhere out west, uh, mountainous, just far, far away. <laughs> Lots of trails away from Pennsylvania. Yeah, I've just I've put my time in, and you know I'm ready. <laughs> I put my time in. Twenty one years, we're good. <laughs> I feel like I've lived a full life now. I'm twenty one, and I'm just going to go experience life. It's gonna be great. Uh, okay, so I had asked everybody to prepare cases, and one of the most important things about this podcast is the ability, ability excuse me, to teach new nurses, but also welcome them into the nursing profession, and even nurses that have been experienced as nurses will oftentimes join in and listen and learn from these podcast episodes. So again, Jaden, I'll start with you. Um, we're going to just discuss cases that were really important to us and have a good clinical knowledge base, so take it away. Okay, so I chose 
a case from the semester on the neuro unit, um, but I actually picked a um, a patient that wasn't a neuro patient just to kind of switch things up because mm -hmm. I figured everyone would be picking neuro patients. <laughs> <You never know. laughs> so this patient was kind of interesting because um, they were first admitted because they slipped on ice and they broke their left hip. Um, so they were in the hospital, went through surgery, were recovering, and they were ready to be discharged. And about a week later, they started having um, coffee ground emesis, vomiting, could not stop, this and that. Um, and then they ended up having a small bowel obstruction. Um, and then they had to go into surgery again um, for now this obstruction. And they found a hernia. Um, so then he's recovering from that. And the day he's going to be discharged, um, now his second discharge plan, he's throwing up a liter of blood. So that was like another unknown happening in his case. Um, and so when I saw him, they were still trying to figure out why he was throwing up that liter of blood and then what was going to, what his plans were um, from that point. He was no longer going to be discharged. Um, yeah. So when I looked at his um, labs, they were like consistent with the fact that he was bleeding with his hemoglobin and hematocrit levels and all of that. Um, when we were in the room, like he didn't appear to be um, distressed at all, which is something that I think as a student nurse is, like can be hard and confusing because you just want to see the symptoms like so clear for you because yeah. you don't have all that experience yet. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like I left the end of the day, they had still hadn't decided what they were going to do with him yet. And I, I don't know what ended up happening after we left, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't remember this person, which is okay, but cause I love reviewing things and kind of like talking through this mm -hmm. as well. This person slipped on ice, broke their hip, yeah. then had surgery. So we learned a lot about surgery and blood pressure, correct? Mm -hmm. in terms of looking at the anesthesia records, as well as, you know, what drugs they received in the OR and, e and even afterwards. So one of the things, I don't know if I showed y'all the scans and stuff from one of, this, one of the most important patients that I can remember, but this person that I'm thinking of, which is different than, than your case, Jaden, um, was a hemorrhage of their head and was doing fine, but was Spanish speaking and complaining of abdominal pain really bad. And everyone kind of pushed her pain to the side because we, they, they didn't believe pain was real in this person for some reason, I can remember this. And then I remember assessing this person's abdomen and it was just rock solid. Like it was like, uh -oh, we have to do something now. So a lot of my journey through this case was pressing the people to get scans, to get x-rays, to get teams up here involved. And somehow this person perfed their bowel, which that's a really big deal because you should perf your bowel after the OR, right? Then we looked back at the anesthesia record and saw that this person's blood pressure went from, I think it was 130s, 120s maybe, dipped down to the 70s. And when we think about these things, <laughs> Rena's giving this look like, oh no. Um, when we think about 
what blood pressure means into the gut and into everything else. If you drop your, your blood pressure, then your blood flow to certain areas is nothing, right? And so then you have the risk of decreasing blood to those areas, which could shorten that bowel and cause that small bowel obstruction and even ischemia or some sort of other problem with your gut. And that's one of the reasons why I press students to really assess the belly because it's one of the most important organs and systems that you're going to assess. As we saw one of our last weeks on the unit, there was a particular patient that had esophageal varices that bled. I don't know if anybody's presenting that person today, but um, we, we can certainly talk about it as well. But they had their esophageal varices you know, explode open like they may do. They needed a metal stent placed. And I think four liters of blood came out of that person's belly and, uh, you know, essentially did not make it because of the, the family chose to withdraw. But those, th that kind of goes with along the same lines of this particular patient that you're presenting was perhaps that, you know, their blood pressure may have dropped and may have caused some sort of small bowel obstruction or if they were on a lot of narcotics, right? Um, vomiting a liter of blood, what, what would we do for that patient if they're vomiting a liter of blood? What kind of meds would we give? And what kind of products would we, would we give as well? I mean, we definitely wanna give blood products because they're just, dropping so much blood um this could also be just a guess like maybe some sort of like vasoconstrictor to like kind of i don't know i strengthen that blood flow or something but that's also a guess maybe it's a vasodilator <laughs> i don't know well i mean if if the pressure is dropping and you want to get the pressure up you would definitely do a vasopressor yeah whether or not you know, it's a constrictor may or may not determine on a bunch of other factors. So fluid and getting it, making sure that their hemodynamics status is important. So that's very much correct. The order of things might be a little bit different and it all might happen at once, right? I know NCLEX wants us to do one thing at a time, but as we've seen on the unit, it happens at the same time and just shoves things in patients sometimes. So fluid is your first choice, right? So your normal saline and your isotonic fluid, such as plasma light, lactated ringers, depending on what the, on what the physician wants is most important because you wanna make sure that fluid status is maintained because what happens when you are giving somebody a vasopressor and you don't have fluid, what happens? There's nothing to move around. Correct. So your heart's gonna be working in overdrive, but your pressure's not gonna improve because your fluid status is here. So no matter how much, you know, vasopressor you're gonna give someone, it's not gonna improve their blood pressure because there's nothing to pump, right? Depending on how low their H&H &H is, uh, is dependent on how many units of blood the team would give, right? Talk to me about some of the symptoms and signs of a blood transfusion reaction. This is very important. Fever, hives, uh, aching in the back, lower back, itchiness, uh, feelings of anxiety, 
feelings of anxiety. Excuse on me. Both, so on both anxiety. the nurse and the patient. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm a nurse. I'm anxious about your blood. Just let me know. <laughs> very, 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 very good. And very important to assess too, because even an increment of one degree from baseline of their temperature is enough for us to say, we got to stop. We have to flush everything through and get you prepared for hopefully not an intubation, but you never know, right? Hip fractures and hip surgeries are, can also produce what in the body if we're not careful? Embolisms. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's important for people to not only hopefully be mobilized early, but also to receive what kind of medications to prevent those. The nurse, blood thinners. Mm-hmm. And usually, go ahead. Lovinox, heparin, Lovinox. Um. <laughs> and what are some simple things? What, what's, what's the number one most simple thing that we do for our patients while they're laying in bed and they have on them? STDs. Yes. So important to not keep those off for longer than, you know, an hour or two because of the risk of clots, especially post-surgery. Unless you have a specific, you know, order from your physician that says, no, no, no. Um, or if they're missing a leg, right? Um, but, but if they're not and they're just chilling in bed, you know, put those SCDs on. It is really, really important. And, you know, I like to advertise the patients that they're these just leg massagers and just relax and just have a nice leg massage, right? Because it's just like, why not? Um, once we got this patient probably stabilized, hopefully we sent them home. That would be just miraculous. Hopefully they didn't have any kind of complications from it. But, you know, hopefully this person can also eat food because the first thing that we're going to do is probably keep them MPO, correct? What, what would we place in them? So if they're vomiting and we're afraid of aspiration, what's one thing that we can do for them that we insert in them to help prevent aspiration? NG. Yes. And why is that important? You don't want the pneumonia. <laughs> you don't want the pneumonia. You also want to decompress their stomach if they're vomiting this stuff up, right? And we want to make sure that we are knowledgeable about how much we're getting out of them because vomit also carries really important electrolytes in it and also can cause electrolyte shifts, right? So vomit can also cause um, things to go haywire. Everyone is ho hopefully familiar with when we take out, so if somebody has a, let me preface this, if somebody has an OG, if somebody has a keel feed or a peg tube or some sort of enteral feeding that they're like tube that they, they have, right? And we check residual by pulling back on those tubes. We can wreck the gut pH pretty easily by not replacing that gastric acid back, right? So think about this person now that we're sucking out fluid from their belly. We're probably going to wreck the, the, the gastric pH. So it is also very important to perhaps give drugs like protonics or some sort of other medication to help protect the belly, right? As long as their belly works and they're not, you know, producing emesis 
and they don't have hypoactive bowel sounds, we should be able to get them started on hopefully like a clear liquid diet and hopefully get them back on their way. Hopefully if, if things resolve, we're probably going to send them to endo and like some of our instructors want us to just call endo like right away during the uh, sim instruction, <laughs> prepare them for endo. It probably happens more at the bedside than it does in the endo unit itself because they're probably pretty sick. Does anybody have questions about this case or, or other thoughts or, or things like that? Um, Jaden, what was the outcome? Um, no, I don't know. All I know is that when we were leaving, um, there was no longer a discharge in, in place um, and they were going to try to move them out of the ICU down to a step down unit, but that's all I was told. So I'm not sure. Someday we may never, we, we may know, but we probably won't know because that person's probably already discharged, hopefully to home, right? Hopefully nothing bad happened to them. Awesome. Great case presentation, great knowledge as well in, in helping us think about what happens even after the OR and GI bleed and stuff. Who wants to present next? I can go. Okay. So this patient, I wouldn't say was my favorite patient, but definitely like the most interesting case. <laughs> Um, this was a 20 and, and, and let me tell you that it's okay to not have favorite patients. Okay. You're going to have a lot of those. I certainly do. I remember one time real quick. Sorry. I remember one time I had this person and they were super addicted to drugs and we were discharging them. And this person told me I am going to die in a fiery car crash on the way home. <laughs> and it was like Thanksgiving. And I was like, cool. Love you too. Love you too. The kicker of it though was this person left an entire bag of medications behind. And so that was like, kind of like the icing on the cake for me. Not that like, I wanted her to have demise. I know that she was going through addiction really bad, but I was kind of like, well, I didn't die on the way home. Y'all I was fine. <laughs> Definitely not one of my favorite patients. I'm glad you didn't die. <laughs> I've also been told that I was going to die tonight. Quote, quote. Um, so I feel like that's just a thing. It's like, and it, what, was it in a fiery car crash though on your way home? Um, no, but the way she said it was really like sadistic. <laughs> like, she had one of those. Like, die. Oh, oh God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very scary. Yeah. But somebody, I didn't. Go ahead. What? I'm sorry. I said it's, I didn't die, but. Yeah. But when they say that, you're like, how do you know? <laughs> like, do you, do you know? Like, I want to know, right? Do they have one of those dolls? that like, you know, you're going to put a pin in and like, you know, these voodoo doll. certain area, a what? A voodoo doll. A voodoo doll. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> like, do these people have voodoo dolls and are they, are they really legit in that, you know, they poke something and then that's it. You have pain and this is how it goes. And that's the end. Right. Not Speaking of voodoo. I have to add, um, <laughs> <laughs> I have to, I was at work last night and I was in a one-to-one -one and with um, a psych patient and I was reading the chart and it said that the mom actually brought him into the hospital because he's been setting small fires in his backyard because of voodoo. And I was like, How old was this person? My age, 22. Okay, all right. So, you okay. know, we had a really great night together. <laughs> I was a little nervous, but yeah. everything, I mean, it was fine. Did you talk to them about the voodoo? I didn't. I didn't want to like be triggering at all. Yeah. So we. Yeah. 
if they're we like yeah sometimes I would love to know more about what goes through people's head. I would love to know too but I didn't even want to yeah I don't blame you right because then like what if he hexes you don't do that yeah I, I was being super nice right. <laughs> he was sitting in bed making his little Jaden right. voodoo doll yeah yeah I didn't want to take it like a compliment huh? <laughs> right that's nice a compliment. he made a doll of you <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh goodness Sorry, Isabel, we got carried off there with voodoo. You're good. Go um, ahead. <laughs> not threatened death on me, so I guess it wasn't that bad of a patient. <laughs> but um, so he was a 23-year-old male. He's got a lot going on in his past history. Um, he was actually, like, I believe it was like earlier that year, he became paralyzed from a DUI accident. Um, he was the person driving under the influence. Um, and he was paralyzed from the waist down. It was a C1 to C3 fracture. He has weakness in his upper extremities. So, I mean, he's not super strong above. It's about like three to four out of five. And then like a one to zero out of five on his lowers. So, but this time around, he was admitted for septic shock. He has this like abscess on his neck. Um, and I think it had... I don't even know if it was like something that he was picking at or something from a past procedure, but um, cause this was like one of my earlier patients, but he did have a fever and symptoms of inflammation and infection. So they did blood cultures to diagnose sepsis. So they had an abscess procedure, abscess washout procedure scheduled for three one um, March 1st, but his oxygen dropped like while he was there and they had to actually intubate him and put a trach in. And so they rescheduled that procedure to two days later and they did it under anesthesia intubated. And so when I saw him, it was the day after he was, sorry, there's a lawnmower okay. outside. I don't know if you can hear. Um, so that was the day after he was extubated. And so when we went into him, he was pretty groggy, um, kind of like what you describe a typical teenager, did not really want to talk to us. I mean, he was 23, but he was, we're all teenagers. And um, he was pretty like groggy. He didn't really want to wake up. Um, he was pretty ronchitic too, like full of mucus and just denied suction, um, even though he sounded like he was basically drowning in his own mucus. And um, so finally he, let us suction and a lot came out, like a lot of yellow drainage. Sorry if anyone's eating. Um, We're all nurses now, right? <laughs> used to it. Yeah, a lot of mucus. Um, and he actually like sounded so much better afterwards. Um, he was pretty, he was definitely alert and oriented, but he was, he was pretty like, just like pissed off, which I mean, I guess I would be if I was paralyzed and had all these issues. Mm -hmm. um, he did have pressure ulcers, like stage four on his caps or sh sorry, stage four on his shins. Um, he had a stage four on his sacrum and I believe some stage two, where did I put this? Um, oh, he had a pressure stage one on his hip. So he had a wound back going on his neck. Um, so there's just like a lot going on clearly like something with self-care he has some self-care deficits um and he just 
wasn't the nicest of patients, which honestly I have to put myself, I think that's like a big thing, especially as like a student. Um, you take things really personally at first and you're like, oh, I guess he just doesn't like me, but you really have to think in their perspective, like he's in a bad situation. Like it's not me, it's, it's everything that's going on. Um, so I think definitely like as a student nurse, your patients aren't mad at you, they're mad at themselves. And you have to just like understand that and not take it personally. Cause at first I was like, oh my God, does he hate me? Like, what did I do wrong? We <laughs> but, just met. Yeah, we just met. Why don't you like me? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, and he's young too. Like, so it's weird seeing someone your age in the hospital so debilitated. Um, and it was kind of sad. Like I wanted to help him, but there's not much you can do. I know his mom helps take care of him at home. Um, so I don't know how they haven't noticed the pressure ulcers, but um, I guess just with, you need more education on how to prevent those. And at that stage, it's pretty hard to heal, um, especially if you can't move your legs on your own. Um, and I know that there was like a consult of palliative slash hospice because he really wasn't doing that much better. But when we spoke to the palliative care team, they like didn't want to word it that way because they thought he would kind of like freak out. So they just like went in and kind of worded it in the sense of like, we're here to help you like be comfortable and happy instead of like saying the words palliative or hospice because um, he's pretty young. I think he wasn't ready for that conversation. Um, yeah, labs, like his white blood count was very elevated, 16,000. Um, I don't remember exactly his procalcitonin level, but I know that's like a sepsis marker and I remember that being high. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's um, pretty much the gist of it. It was just hard seeing a young patient, but um, definitely like one of my most interesting and complex cases that I saw. Yeah, I definitely agree. That was one of the craziest cases that I think I've ever seen as well. And you bring up a really good point with the conversations around hospice and palliative and what it means to be 23, I think you said. And you know, what we often look for in hospice and palliative, we often think of death, right? And that's not necessarily true. Hospice, yes, hospice is your end of life care, but palliative care should be more, or I shouldn't say more, but greatly greater utilized. I don't know what the correct verbiage is right now in terms of every patient because of what palliative care actually means and what it can support. And Palliative care could really be utilized for those that are going through some sort of stressful moment. Doesn't matter if you're if you're dying or if you have cancer, because those are the two often most utilized services for palliative care. It could be anything from like having a new stroke and you're the caregiver and you just have no clue how to handle your life. You know, even even so for the family members of this particular patient palliative services would be super beneficial for them, but we just don't necessarily utilize them in the hospital system for that. And I don't know why. I don't know why, you know, we don't have more palliative care providers in, in systems. And it's not just one organization. It's a lot of them that have no clue how to kind of like utilize a palliative care service. And quite honestly, it could be, the, it could be that, you know, it's utilized so much in cancer and end of life care. And those two things can be separated, not necessarily together with cancer and end of life. 
but those two things might be overutilized so much that we don't have enough to provide to patients when they have, you know, less complex things going on, such as, you know, I've been diagnosed with pancreatitis. I don't know. Or I've been diagnosed with X, Y, and Z, and I don't know how I'm going to pay for my next meal or get my meds or things like that. That's like a palliative care area that could be utilized much more. So I think you're right on the money with discussing this and telling students, you know, A, it's not about you as a student. They, they don't hate you. They hate themselves, but they also have a hard time with figuring life out. And palliative services might be the answer or the bridge to that. Also, you know, if you're 20 some years old and, you know, you're looking forward to X, Y, and Z about your life and all of a sudden that's not going to happen anymore because of some really bad accident, that's got to be really, you know, horrible to kind of ingest in yourself. And that can be very hard for not only a student nurse, but a newer nurse who may be in their early 20s, because certainly there are nurses that will be new and also in their 30s and their 40s, whatever, but those that are around similar ages. So when you have patients that are your similar age to you, doesn't matter what age you are, it's probably going to be pretty hard. Because when you see someone who is the same age as you, you're like, oh man, they have all the stuff going on. How am I possibly going to be in this person's shoes when I don't have that going on, right? That can cause issues within your own dynamic as a healthcare provider. And recognizing those things, no matter what stage of life you're in or career, you know, choices and all, all that stuff is really important to acknowledge and just kind of like not blame yourself on that and just let it go. Um, a lot of times when I see my, you know, my, myself and my patients, and oftentimes they're younger than me, when I see myself, I'm like, man, if I was that age and I had this going on, like, I don't know what I would do, right? But a lot of times you, you take that guilt and you have to not judge yourself on having that guilt. It's going to happen. You're going to feel guilty for something. I don't know what it's going to be. And it might not be like flashing you in the face of like, this is what guilt feels like, but it could be something little that causes you an, some sort of like uncomfortable feeling that you just have to accept as being this uncomfortable feeling, not judge yourself over it and say, okay, and I'm going to just, you know, let it be. It's one of the biggest things I think that drives moral distress in people is that it's hard to let things go because things affect you so much, but it's also okay to feel those things. And it's also okay to not judge yourself on them. That's a big component of handling people because just like this particular patient that we just talked about, who's experiencing his own things, who probably has yelled at people for certain things that they're not guilty of and, and have done to him, but because of the, you know, the pickle, so to speak, that he's in, he's going to have really hateful things to say to people, right? Because he's not able to accept things for himself or their self. So I think that was a really good point for you to make as well in this case. The really important thing that I'm glad you brought up was procalcitonin level. We talk a lot about procalcitonin levels in intensive care nursing, and especially in this clinical, because of its important, not only in sepsis, but in also long-term success for patients to survive. It's a very important level to get to know. Um, we use it a lot for our sepsis driver. It's much more indicative of, sep of sepsis than lactic acid, what they're what currently re research is finding. I don't know if it's going to be on your all's NCLEX. Sorry. Um, probably on the MP exam, maybe, right? Maybe. <laughs> Kaylin's like, yes, it's definitely going to be on that. <laughs> but really important to know 
you know, as y'all dig deeper into your physiology of your patients, which is one of the coolest things that I think as any kind of nurse, you can, you can learn and learn and learn and never learn enough about how the body works under certain areas of stress. Procalcitone is one of those things that just baffles my mind all the time. And one of the things that I compare it to is a marathon runner. So patients lie in bed and are essentially running marathons when they're sick. Heart rate's up, blood pressure could be up or down. They're going through a lot of things, they're getting meds, they're physiologically working as hard as a marathon runner. So because of that, marathon runners also, at the end of the marathons, have been tested for their lactic acid levels. And they could be like ridiculously high, like 10, 11, crazy high for a lactic acid level because their muscles are releasing that, right? Same thing with lactic acid in patients, their muscles are releasing that. Differently with procalcitonin, it's released from your thyroid. So when your thyroid gets activated as such, it's responding to an infection source or some sort of source of inflammation that's different from lactic acid. It's not releasing anything. It's just kind of building up and we test for it. So those two things are very different, but also have very important aspects to it. Our um, sepsis alert system that we have all over the hospital organizations of like, I think the nation have a um, SERS alert now. Lactic acid is one of them. A lot of times you'll meet physicians that just don't care about it because it might not be indicative of actual sepsis or infection. And that's part of the problem with interpreting lactic acid versus interpreting procalcitonin and why it's important to learn both of them. Because you're gonna see people, like just the other day I had someone whose lactic was bumped to two. That's not very high for a person, right? But they were like, oh, we gotta recheck that. The system says, I gotta recheck that. The doctors are like, no, we don't because they just came back from surgery. So we're going to have this expected bump in lactic acid. So we're not going to be super concerned about it. Plus we're, plus we're treating them already for blood pressure issues or, you know, giving them albumin or other things that we, that we can, you know, expect to happen from this injury. However, procalcitonin may not be elevated after surgery. And so thus is why it's important to know both and have that in your clinical back pockets. When, you, when we have people that, that need a lot of different procedures that can also be very hard as well. Certainly this person had washouts after washouts after washouts, had complication after complication. And although probably has clinical depression, probably isn't going to be accepted of that because of how young they are. And who knows if it's just socio-dynamics of that, you know, family expectations, if they are the only male head of the household, it, it, that could be a thing, right? Um, if they're the only provider of the household, I don't know, but I'm just saying different ideas here that could be a cause of this person's, you know, fight or flight. And I'm just going to like fight everybody that comes into my room, right? Um, those are certain uh, considerations to, to also think of. The importance though of moving your patients every two hours. So there's not really good research that actually suggests that turning your patients every two hours prevents um, pressure ulcers or that stuff. There's a lot of different turning policies and things like that, that exist in the literature. However, we tend to turn our patients every two hours because it's A, habit, B, it's probably pretty good for them to also get their lungs moving and C, you know, it's been what's prescribed by our wound OSPI nurses for our patients. So we do it. And I can't say that it's that it's not helpful because 
you know, none of my patients that I've turned over two hours have ever developed pressure ulcers during my watch or have had like skin breakdown or things like that. And as we know, skin is the number one, most largest organ of our body. And taking care of that is the number one most important thing that you're ever going to do as nurses. It sounds so super silly to think about, right? But if you meet somebody with really bad uh, feet and they are dry and they are gross looking, they have a heck of a lot more going on with them than you might know about, right? This guy had really bad feet. Right, right? And you, you meet people with bad feet and you seem to think they got maybe peripheral vascular disease in their lower extremities. They might have other things going on with them. Diabetes might be a thing because they're not able to take care of their feet. They have decreased wound healing. Even things like the ability to bend over and stretch and remain elastic is really important for people because of the elasticity of your arteries and your vessels and your veins and all those important things. Yoga is really important for that reason because it keeps us elastic. You see someone that's slow walking, right? If they're slower walking, they're less elastic. They may have something else going on with them. They're less able to bend over and take care of their feet. Thus, we have problems. Things that you'll begin to think about in your patient population, you know, whoever you take care of, that's going to be really important for you to assess and like handle right away. Um, so for skin alone, some of the things that we all do perhaps are to put lotion on them right? That's, that's a really important thing, getting some good solid lotion, which is not, we have really good lotion. I've seen some that are like those water-based lotions that just kind of glide right over the skin. And you're like, what is this even doing? <laughs> if they don't even touch your hands, if you're going to like lotion your hands with them up, right? Making sure that, you know, their fluid status is good because skin has a lot to do with fluid status. Skin ha also has a lot to do with protein, right? Your, your pre-albumin levels, your protein levels, those things play into a part of why this person has dry skin or, or impaired healing. And really being sure to educate people that by doing this, you're gonna get out of here sooner, you're gonna heal quicker, all these you know most important things. Whether or not this person wanted to hear about that, I have no clue, but certainly educating your patients on them, turning your, your patients every two hours, being mindful that you know all of those lines and all of those like, um, tubes and things like that can impair the skin if you're not careful. There's huge injuries with condom caths now. There's huge injuries with Foley's, like all that stuff is really important. That was a huge standard on skin, by the way. But things that are important that perhaps would play a, a part into this case because of how um, hemodynamically depressed this person was and didn't have good skin healing or wound healing probably didn't have enough protein in their diet, like things like that, that you think of, right? Everyone shake their head. Yes. Um, but these things really impact patients. And Kayla, when you become an MP and you deal with these really complex families that, you know, you're going to educate them on all sorts of things. Hopefully it's not just medications, Lord help, help me if it is, but there's a lot of things that play into dynamics of food sources and how are they eating and how are they exercising? Just simple, basic things that people just don't think of because they don't, you know, see themselves down the line of being that sick, right? So that's going to be important too to consider, even if you're going to experience life as an MP or as some sort of other advanced provider. Perhaps you go to CRNA school, perhaps you do nursing informatics and you want to, you know, detail your life in data. Like that could be important too. Anyway, long tangent. Anybody have any questions, comments? or other items that they want to talk about this case? <laughs> Sean's like, no, 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 no. 
I'm gonna take a quick pause. Okay, who is next? I can go next. Okay. Um, so I had a patient on the narrow floor, but she was not a narrow floor. She was on the ice cream side. Um, she was what I thought was a hot mess express, but after listening to your guys' story, I don't know if she qualifies. Um, but she was admitted for an ovarian mass that she was going to have taken out via an exploratory lap. And that was postponed because her heme was too low. So then they postponed it. And then once her heme was high enough, she underwent a total hysterectomy uh, with bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy with resection of the large left ad, 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 I can't say it, adnexal rectovaginal mass. And then it came back as metastatic carcinoma. Wow. So this procedure was then complicated by significant blood loss. She lost about five liters. Um, and then they couldn't close her abdomen. So it was closed two days later. Additionally, colostomy was placed during the laparotomy. And then she had acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, which then she also developed compartment syndrome in her right arm. Uh, they have no idea what caused that. It just, they threw it in there. Um, and then she <laughs> underwent a fasciectomy on the 21st. And then they found a DVT in her left arm. Um, and then they found that she had pneumonia and her heme was five. So she underwent another transfusion. And then she was finally extubated um, on the 26th and the surgery was on the 11th. So quite a bit of time. Um, and then she was fluid overloaded um, after she was extubated. And so just managing her care between the DVT and the uh, compartment syndrome and the uh, low oxygenation and then the pneumonia and the heme uh, was just a work of art. Uh, she was very pleasant though as a patient she was super cute um, but she had very high hopes for herself. Uh, she lived alone prior to this happening and had never really had to deal with an ostomy or any other significant health problems and in her mind she was going right home after this uh, but it clearly was not appropriate uh, given her health. And I don't think that had really hit her yet. She was being consulted with um, hospice and her gynecology oncology team uh, to come up with a plan. But at the point in time that I had this patient, she was still gonna be dealing with a lengthy stay in the hospital given her current level of care. She also had an NG tube in and was on a Keo feed. Um, and yes, uh, I picked this patient. She wasn't my favorite patient, um, but she, I didn't, I liked her. She was, she was super cute. She was a little peach, um, but I picked her because of how much she had going on in a majority of systems, which I found to be really interesting. That is really interesting. I'm glad you picked this person because of the hemonc aspect of it as well because we know hemonkers can just go south yeah and yeah. you're right this person definitely definitely is a hot mess express uh there's no going around it i think there's different levels that different levels different people who are hot mess expresses in their own mind because of different things that can happen to them during their stay so this person needed an ovarian laparotomy and an oophorectomy and all this other crazy stuff and then at a five liter blood loss that's really bad that's really significant. 
um, perhaps needed a ton of fluids on board and vasopressors. I'm not sure if she, if this person was on that. I don't remember. He was on vasopressors. Actually, she, she did have a goal. Um, and she liked to, to dance on that line of the goal. <laughs> <laughs> I like to dance on the line of I'm alive and I'm dead. How about that? <laughs> um, yeah, she was on the beta law. Okay. So that's not necessarily a vasopressor, but that's definitely something that helps control blood pressure oh, in yes. terms of getting that pressure down, which is okay. Cause you're thinking about things like that, right? Blood pressure is not, you're not going to be expected as a student to know how yes, to manipulate vasopressors, right. And how to push labetalol. We just know that we have vasopressors and we have labetalol and what they kind of do, right. We get quizzing all the time. Well, what does labetalol do? Well, it's a beta blocker. Okay. And that's it right? That's all you need to know for clinical. It's like what physiologically they might do. However, just like we talked about other vasopressors and what you need in the body before you, you do that, similar things in terms of beta law and hydralazine are the two most common um, antihypertensives. We still need to know what they do, but you're not going to necessarily engage with that until you've, you know, been a nurse with, with patients that need those from time to time again and discuss the importance of those with physicians. Cause you could look at them and say, well, of course they're gonna help control my blood pressure less than 150 or 160, whatever the case may be for that particular patient. But those things have different clinical aspects depending on you know, what the patient outcome is. There is a difference between giving 10 milligrams of labetalol and 20 milligrams of labetalol um, to patients because it helps different aspects of it. It might be too much of a beta to give somebody at specific times. And there might be other components of the drug itself of why we don't give, you know, 20 and why we might only give 10. So different ingredients and drugs, things like that. Um, The interesting part about this particular patient was impaired wound healing, which strikes me, right? And we just talked about protein and stuff. Cancer is one of those things that people may have impaired protein regulations and impaired wound healing, not necessarily because they have diabetes. We don't know that, right? But cancer does impair the wound healing process by the nature alone of cancer. And one of the, one of the cool things about seeing an open abdomen, did this person, this person had an open abdomen and did they have a wound back on? She had an open abdomen, but at the time that I had her, it had been closed. Okay. But they probably did have a wound back on at one point when I saw her, she was completely sealed. Okay. That's really neat to see as well. And in terms of how they close an open abdomen. So when they go in and do the, these surgeries, it sounds like, you know, they did this oophorectomy, the oophorectomy was not enough. So then they had to do probably an exploratory laparotomy to open the abdomen up. And once you open a belly up, and there's something wrong with, with, with the belly, going back to our GI, why it's really important. Pressure builds in that abdomen and may not be okay to close the abdomen totally because of the amount of pressure that's building. And if you have that happen, you're gonna develop abdominal compartment syndrome really bad. And that is another surgical emergency. You also are going to have complications with the bladder because your abdomen is now exploding and then it presses down the bladder, which we know from, I think one of our patients was on a bladder monitor, if I could remember correctly. We talked about abdominal compartment syndrome. No, I do, I do remember that. So when they, when they leave the belly open, there's sutures 
that exist kind of like on like the internal abdomen wall that's open. And then they kind of yoink these sutures more close together. And it can happen to the bedside. And it's pretty wild to see because you're like, mm, that is not something that I ever want to deal with in my in my life, right? I, and I call, um they closed the chest of a nine-day-old when I was on the PICU. At bedside. Um, yeah, she had she had a aortic coarctation repair and a tetralogy of flow repair the same day. Um, but the same thing of what kind of what you're saying, um, how they closed it was pretty similar. Yeah. And they act like an OR. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The team came in like orchestrated everything. And I was like, <laughs> right, right. And you're like, so do I do anything? No, yeah. perfect. I'm going to be hanging out here. Let me know when y'all are done. <laughs> right. So it's, it, it, it really is important to monitor that belly when it is open and has a wound back on it. There's going to be specific wound vac parameters. So negative 75 um, millimeters of mercury or 125 or things like that will probably be on the machine and in the order set because you don't want to over, over suck things dry because you risk losing fluid that way as well, wrecking all that stuff. And then once that belly is closed, you still need to monitor it for bowel sounds and make sure that that's, those suture sites don't open because that's a whole other can of worms you don't want to open, literally and figuratively. And you also want to make sure that, you know, you, you don't turn this into a surgical emergency at the bedside, meaning that they have internal bleeding, meaning that they need all sorts of other meds and just increased level of care, right? I don't know why this person developed compartment syndrome, but compartment syndrome can happen obviously in the arm as this person had, but also in the abdomen and anywhere else in life. Um, they, did they have an IV that infiltrated? They didn't think so. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to think if she had a central line or not placed during the surgery. And I cannot remember. I wonder if this person, you know, just had really gnarly circulation and circulation was impaired because of vasopressors or um, anesthesia or something and thus developed compartments in, in, in the arm, you know? Yeah. They also found like mass metastasis when they opened her up. Uh, that's why they consulted hospice after yeah. this surgery because they didn't think that her body was strong enough to go undergo any form of treatment. Um, so I don't know if maybe cancer, I mean, I know cancer does a lot of crazy stuff to the body. So maybe if that played a role in the compartment syndrome, but they were basically like, they had no idea. Like it, they were completely surprised when they found that. Yeah. Yeah. And even the hypoxemic respiratory failure is really interesting to happen after surgeries because that sometimes, most of the time won't happen, you know, when they just all of a sudden just don't breathe. Right. Um, could it be from the activity level? Was she, was she decreasing in, in the activity level? You know, was she placed on the most simple tool ever, the ISB? Like everybody needs an ISB. When you're a nurse, guys, when you're working, get them an ISB. Get it is one of the most simplest tools ever and it's highly effective in preventing those lungs from closing. It just literally has breathing techniques and it helps facilitate opening of those little alveoli. It helps prevent hypoxic respiratory failure and even like um, fluid buildup and all, the, all those other crazy stuff that you don't wanna happen to, to your patients. The yeah. note of um, high hopes 
you know, is really important for patients. You don't want to have the patient lose their, lose their hope because they're living on their own. They're living in their own world. You know, they think everything's PG keen. They're going to go back to living their normal life. This was just a little blip in the hospital. And now they have like this, like crushing diagnosis of Mets everywhere. And who knows, like, honestly, how this stuff happens. So things that make it easier for me as a nurse are pathophysiology, right? And taking care of yourself, number two, realizing that a lot of people don't know how to take care of themselves because of different knowledge deficits and things like that. Um, but working with somebody in terms of breaking it down and, and not like crushing their hopes, but also not um, damaging whatever their thought may be for the future, right? That would just be like crushing to them as well. Um, so I think palliative is a really good choice for this particular patient and also um, clergy to see them might also be a really good idea. And I, I wanna say that in certain areas, there's, there's probably like somebody in a cancer institute somewhere that has programs that would help people cope, I would hope anyway. So maybe those people are, are important too. Um, but yeah, the, I'm assuming that this person got a lot of blood. Blood can also cause compartment syndrome, right? So so that might be why, why happened in the arm, who, who the heck knows? But compartment syndrome from blood can certainly happen. Um, it doesn't matter if it's one unit or five units or whatever, but it can certainly happen and it happens quick. Did they have to slice her arm open? Yep. Um, she had a fasciectomy um, and she had stitches on there. She had stitches everywhere on her body um, from the laparotomy. And then I feel like she had stitches somewhere else too. And then she had fungus growing around the laparotomy. Um, and uh, oh, also the other thing was they, she was not... Um, she, the, she was on like the highest vent settings when she was extubated um, or uh, oxygen settings. And they were thinking of actually putting a trach in um, and it, them explaining this to her. I feel like she didn't really understand it um, because I just feel like her, 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 her knowledge of health was a little uh, debilitating and um, the trach was going to be like a permanent thing. It wasn't they were trying to explain to her, like, if this goes in, we're probably not going to be reversing it because she was 78. Um, but she was like, well, if it's going to help me breathe and live longer than I want it. But at the same time, uh, her quality of life was not strong. And I just think she, she was, she had a lot higher hopes than was realistic, but yeah. Yeah. But maybe in her head, that was realistic for her. Like, oh yeah, I can live with this trach and still garden. Yeah. <laughs> still do still do crazy things that people think that they could do you know um i think though hopefully in the future we'll hopefully we'll get better at allowing people to go home even with complex care the problem is affording it right you can't just like afford you know somebody to watch your trach 24 7 that's expensive and insurance won't cover it which is the other problem too but um but certainly Certainly to, to be 78, let's think about this too. To be 78, to go through all that and still be like, I'm fine, right? <laughs> That's what I want to be like when I'm 78, I hope, right? Is to still have this high hope of like, I'm, I'm going to be fine. Even though I have like my arm sliced open, my abdomen sliced open. I went through a nephrectomy. I lost five liters of blood. I had hypoxic respiratory failure. I'm trached. 
Innovated for two weeks. And what? <laughs> and I was innovated for two weeks. Right. And I was innovated for two weeks, but I am good now. You know, what what kind of I mean, that's that's just kind of amazing to think about when you're she at that a, age. Huh? She was a peach. She's a peach. The peach. I'm gonna write that one down. Peach. Peach. Fabulous. Anybody have anything else to add to this case or questions or comments or anything? I was just curious, did she have a support person with her in the ICU that like maybe understood the gravity of the situation a bit more than she No, did? I know her family was being consulted, um, but when I had her, she was alone. Um, this was a couple months ago, so, or two months ago. So it was still, I don't know what the visitor policy was, but I think they could have one visitor, but um, I know her family was definitely being consulted on her care. But she had lived independently prior to this, um, and she has family close by, but she was completely independent and then just went in for this and completely turned her life upside down. Mm. Gotcha. I was just curious. Independence is one of those things that you always need to fight for for your patients because that's what they want to do, right? And it's never, it's never my what I want for them. It's whatever they want for themselves. That's, that's also the most important thing is like, whatever the patient chooses is what we're going to have to go with as, as hard as it might be. Right. Similar things happen when we have like terminal extubations and you know, the family wants to make that decision or when we know it's just not going to end up very well for the person that we're taking care of, but the family wants everything done. Just, you just got to do it as hard as it, as hard as and mentally draining as that's going to be, because sometimes it is, it's still, at least in Pennsylvania, the law that they can reverse a living will and a DNR, DNI and all this other stuff. So um, a lot of people will probably be vocal about it that, that you work with and may have a hard time dealing with it. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not about you. It's just about whatever the family and the patient wants. And sometimes, you know, it is what it is, right? All right. Who is next? I can go next. Okay. So my patient was an 88-year-old male. Uh, he's also in their ICU. Uh, his neighbors noticed some odd behavior between him and his wife recently, but the day they called 911, it was more extreme behaviors. Uh, so EMS arrived to their house, and they said the home smelled like a UTI. Uh, <laughs> The patient was not responsive and it found out that he has expressive aphasia and a history of dementia. And his wife was starting to show signs of dementia as well, so they couldn't get honest answers out of her. Uh, so they brought him into the hospital and MRI done where they found large vessel occlusion with loss of flow related to a related enhancement in the proximal M1 of the left MCA and a near complete loss of flow uh, within the left MCA distal branches, along with uh, two subacute infarcts in the left white matter and caudate. So full of stuff. Um, while I was there, he was pretty much out of it for the most part, wasn't awake. I uh, woke him up to just do neuro exams. Um, most of his labs were pretty stable other than his blood, which was just a little low. Uh, his, Hemoglobin and rank were lower than, like, but he was pretty calm. It was hard to get answers out of him again with dementia. Uh, his discharge plan was to hopefully get him and his wife moved into a home, but they were waiting on uh, how the care was going to go for them and trying to find a place that was suitable for them. 
uh, family was being consulted and the daughter came in for a little bit and they were trying to talk to her about it. But it turns out that it seemed like that uh, the two of them had been living alone this entire time and if it wasn't for the neighbor that this could have gotten a lot worse for the patient. Pretty, pretty simple other than all the stuff going on I said. <laughs> Pretty, pretty simple, except for everything else going on, right? The care I had to do that day was pretty simple. <laughs> it was, he's, he was not simple. Yeah. This was a really good person to learn on. We learn about a ton of ischemic strokes because that's what we see a lot of on the unit, right? So what is one of the medications, if we were to catch this on time, that we could give to this patient? TPA. Yes. TPA. Yep. And what does TPA do? It dissolves the clot. Mm -hmm. How many hours do we have to give TPA to a patient? Three. Maybe four, depending on the facility. Correct. Sometimes people get excited and they're like, well, we can give it now. You know, it's like six hours later and it's like, kind of like, well, maybe not, <laughs> you know? If TPA fails a patient or, you know, we, so we, we, we give TPA this person, Let's just go with this case study, right? Expressive aphasia, dementia, but expressive aphasia is his stroke symptom, right? So dementia is not necessarily a stroke symptom, but expressive aphasia is, and being unresponsive definitely is. And we give TPA to this person and they are kind of getting their speech better, but then it gets worse. Who are we going to consult for that person to, to go to? What's our next step? CAT scan. We're not going to go to CAT scan. We already know they have a stroke. That's a good thought though. Speech. Huh? Speech. No, it's, it's more of an emergent procedure that we're going to do for this patient. See, my brain was like, oh, they got the TPA and now they're getting worse. They're bleeding. So I was thinking they have to get rescanned. Could be. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a good thought. Um, go ahead, Isabel. Sorry. Like some craniotomy surgery to go in there and just kind of like either remove the clot or stop the bleed. Correct. So if the patient, so let's talk about both of your responses because they're technically both correct. The thing that I was kind of looking for was more going to a procedure called IR and getting that clot sucked out if we know that the patient has a clot. However, when the person gets CPA, they are at high risk for bleeding, which is what Lexi brought up really nicely, correct. Um, there are certain signs and symptoms that we look for. So if a patient is like fine, and then all of a sudden they go like berserk and they're just not like, they're kind of climbing out of bed and that you, they're just completely different in terms of like kind of going crazy a little bit for lack of a better description. They might have a bleed in their head. Um, blood pressure control is very important post TPA depending on a lot of different factors, but we make sure that it doesn't go above, you know, certain parameters, right? So a head CT is definitely warranted. However, if the person we know has one symptom, such as expressive aphasia, and it's gotten slightly better, but then the expressive aphasia has gotten worse, we know that it probably may have reoccluded. So that's when we have to go to IR and hopefully get that clot sucked out, right? Um, it's really important to note that the sim that these things have to have like the same symptom or like, you know, greater, like if they come in with like left side of weakness and the weakness is getting better, but then all of a sudden it got worse, that's an indication that we have to go do some sort of other emergency procedure to help that brain get that clot out. We did a lot of scan reviews as well, because I love pictures. And 
all of those fancy colorful pictures that we looked at the perfusion scans, um, those help us determine, you know, where the clot is and what we're looking for. IR can sometimes, if, if they do like a scan of the head with like just like your simple fluoroscopy um, with the head, it sometimes can let us know that there's a bleed up there. But IR is definitely mostly just for the vessels itself to know. Um, and depending on, on, you know, the surgeon that day depends on how long that procedure will actually take. So, um, so then once they are done from IR, it's an entirely different set of blood pressure parameters because if they retrieve the clot, now we have a huge issue of perfusion, right? And so one of the things that can happen, so let's say this gentleman went to IR and we sucked out the clot and it was completely, you know, retrieved, they could have reperfusion injuries if we're not careful. So now our parameter went from cystox less than 180 to cystox now less than 150 or 140, wherever the surgeon wants them. So that becomes important because now they're at double risk of bleeding, which can happen, um, but at least we got the clot out, right? Um, so now we go to what Rena brought up, which was speech therapy and other therapies. Rena, tell me about what, the, what speech therapists do. Um, I know they evaluate, especially for like a diet for ischemic stroke patients and like the appropriate diet because they do, they are qualified to do the swallow test. Mm -hmm. uh, but from what I've seen with speech therapy and past units and my junior year, mostly was that they help almost like train, I guess, the vocal cords again to like talk again sort of thing. Or if they can't reach the level of like talking that they were originally at their baseline, they find new ways of communication and like how to retrain those muscles so they mm -hmm. can voice words. That's perfect. They also do a lot with cognitive therapies as well. Speech therapists are worth their weight in gold times five, because not only do they work on swallowing methods, getting the person on the correct diet. I usually, if, if I'm, if I'm second guessing myself and I have, and I'm not sure that the patient can really tolerate, you know, oral things very well, let's say their level of consciousness is just not there or they're coughing a lot. Um, and we've, and we've trialed them out with it, with a swallow valve. I will literally wait for the speech therapist to come see them because we can manage people's nutrition levels and all that stuff with fluids, medications, things like that. We can place tubes and stuff. Um, but if I'm just not sure, it's, it's better to just wait than to risk pneumonia, in my opinion, right? The family, and explain that to the family is very important because the first thing they're gonna wanna do is, well, can he have something to drink? That is literally the first thing everyone has asked me anytime we see stroke patients. Well, can he have something to eat or drink? Because he hasn't eaten since this time fair, but no, you can't have that. So speech therapists also do a really good job at cognitive reviews and evaluations and getting to know where a person is cognitively in their head. So as an example, this case that just happened had a very young person, 19, 20 years old, and they were at a college, partied, um, passed out. Somebody brought them to the hospital. I don't know that we, we thought it was, I think we thought it was meningitis, right? This is probably one of our last cases that we saw. And speech therapy came in 
you know, a couple days after and his cog level was, was not there like at all, was like maybe a 12 year old at that point of how much this knocked him back. And to me, that was really surprising. It wasn't like, it wasn't, you know, all the way surprising because of meningitis and how that really attacks the brain and kind of messes up your, your cog about a lot. However, with this particular one, I was very, you know, convinced that he was probably fine. Right. And then speech goes in and they're like, no, he's not fine. He's at the 1% of cognitive function right now where when we should be at like the 90 percentile. And I was like, oh, okay. So when you get speech therapists to come in, always do a cog about, they're really good at, at assessing dementia. So for this particular patient that Sean presented, they're going to be really good at knowing, you know, where their cog about is and how they're going to do well in life after this diagnosis. So that's very important to consider for your patients as well. Um, I had something else to mention about this patient though, and I forget what it is. Hmm. Discharge planning is always really important with your patients. That starts from day one, um, especially if you have a good, you know, social worker, care coordinator, um, all the services have to come together. Everybody has to be in agreement of this is where this person's gonna go. Your PTOT speech therapy notes are the most important things that are going to help you out with patients and where they're going to go post-discharge, right? Um, most strokes go to rehab or a long-term care facility or somewhere else. And most of them have caregiver burden and, care and caregiver stress. And so hopefully these people went to live together, this husband and wife, because that would just be sad in my opinion for these people to not go together. But stranger things have happened. Um, what else does anybody have, does anybody have anything else to say for this particular case? I do want to mention though, as well, that when we assess stroke patients, they're probably going to be on, if, if they're in ischemic stroke and they're without, they're outside of this window of rebleeding. Um, and I just, I just remember, I remembered as well what I wanted to say before. Anywho, so first things first. So Medications are going to be very important. They're probably going to be on a statin. They're probably going to be on an aspirin. They're, they might be on some other kind of anticoagulant therapy, depending on what their labs look like. If this person had a fib, so we want to figure out the cause of the ischemic stroke prior to just simply treating them with medication. So if, if they have like an AFib, it's a new AFib, why is the AFib happening? Um, are they going to be started on a drug like metoprolol? Um, they're definitely going to be on some sort of aspirin or anti. Um, which call it therapy, coagulant, excuse me. And then we go from there to see how, what else they're going to need. Are they going to need blood pressure medications to help control their blood pressures now that they're post-stroke? All these things kind of go, go into play. The other thing I wanted to mention about TPA is that you have four hours to give TPA. And within those four hours before you give TPA, everything should be placed within that patient, including peripheral IVs, tube feeds, Foley catheters, et cetera. If you need a place full of catheter, that's fine. After TPA, it's just going to leave it in. You don't want them to, you kind of want to create that tamponade effect because they're at high risk of bleeding by causing the tears in those muscles. Placing peripheral IVs is also fine post-TPA. You just got to be really careful that you're not going to cause the bleeding in your patients. So things that I would not do include placing a keo feed or, or other thing like that, unless like it's absolutely like warranted. Like now we have gut bleeding, and we have to place an NG tube because this is gonna be a mess if we don't. So that's all I wanted to say 
in regards to that particular patient because of how TPA interacts with strokes. So who's next? I can go. Yep. Um, so I also chose a non-neuro patient to switch it up, but everyone switched it up. So um, this was a MICU patient. He was a 64-year-old male, um, a past medical history of COPD and hypertension. He was admitted with a COPD exacerbation and aspiration pneumonia. So he presented to the ED with uh, shortness of breath and just a general anxiousness. And while he was in the ED, he required BiPAP to maintain his O2 sats. And then at some point in the ED, the nurse walked into the room, found his BiPAP off. He was pulseless, gray with cool skin. So they immediately began CPR and they got him back. So he had spontaneous return of circulation. And then he was intubated to maintain his oxygenation. Um, so his ABGs were done and they revealed respiratory acidosis. And I can give those labs quick because yeah. those are the most... Um, related ones, I guess. So his pH was 7.29. His PCO2 was 98. His PO2 was 27. His bicarb was 47.1. And then another one I included was his albumin was 2.9, which is just like um, related to malnutrition with COPD patients. So he was on the ventilator. Um, and then he was able to come off of the ventilator and they did a chest x-ray and found that he had right lower lobe pneumonia suspect from aspiration, but they couldn't really tell if it was from aspiration or being on the ventilator, um, just like timing wise. And so he was up walking around a few days later and then he had a fall and hit his head and he went into AFib RVR. And then they just like did a CT of his head to make sure everything was fine. And he had no bleeds or abnormalities. Um, but then his O2 sats fell again with the AFib and um, led to another intubation. And then he was extubated and kind of flipping between AFib and normal sinus when I saw him. And then the biggest thing when I was with this patient was that they were doing a speech evaluation um, because of that aspiration. So I got to see his speech eval and he completely failed. Um, and it was pretty obvious when he failed because like about an hour after his speech eval, his SATs declined to 86 or 88 when I was there. And um, he ended up having to go on BiPAP again by the end of the day. So that was him. And when I left, um, they were consulting uh, hospice and palliative too, because he's basically not gonna be able to eat with his muscles and his breathing. He has really bad swallowing and uh, his lungs are just not looking good. So that's a lot. Talk to us a little bit about why protein and COPD is so important. Um, well, I mean, protein, what I think about with albumin is like keeping your cardiac output up and like having enough fluid to maintain perfusion. And just in general with COPD, like you, you're working so hard to breathe that you're spending a lot of calories and you lose weight and you, when you're eating too, like you can't breathe very well. So it's just like, you don't get very much nutrition and then your albumin ends up going down. Yes. It's, it's really fascinating to think of our patients kind of like professional athletes in a way that don't get the things that they need throughout their life. So, you know, when you see athletes, they're always like chugging a Gatorade, like, like, I know that's very vague of a description, right? But they're always doing something. Sean's got Gatorade. <laughs> Sean's like, I'm an athlete. Dang it. 
which you are. Nurses, if you're running around a unit, you'd be surprised at how much fluid you actually lose in a in a 12-hour shift. It's unreal. So always, you know, drink or eat your protein and your Gatorades and your electrolytes and your fluids. Like it's important. Um, but when we think of, you know, how we lose fluids, breathing is one of the highest rate of fluid losses in the body. So if you're increasing your, your breathing rate and you have COPD on top of it and you can't catch your breath, you've always problems associated with yourself, your albumin levels, your electrolytes are going to be thrown off. You're probably going to be already in acidosis before you be, before you become intubated, right? Um, COPD is a horrible disease. It, if once you reach stage four and we have this discussion, you know, with you, not we, cause I don't do these discussions, but if there's a physician or another provider that would have this discussion with you um, about what your plans are as a patient, it's definitely not gonna be going back on the ventilator. You know, at, cert at a certain point, you are not gonna be placed back on that ventilator because you're not gonna come, up, come off. And that has everything to do with lung function. Um, I love that you brought up the fact that this patient had AFib because we often forget that cardiac stuff, how the heart pumps directly interacts with the lungs and the function of the lungs. And so like, for instance, just the other day, we had this upgrade and this really lovely peach of a lady, Lexi, I'm stealing your, your verbiage here, but she just, her heart just, you know, wanted to do funky things and wanted to be in a AFib at a rate of 130s, 150s, nothing wrong, right? <laughs> and I get the patient and I get this report and report, not, not the best report and that's okay. Because I know in my, in my training that I can assess the patient and make decisions based on what I see, or at least let the team know, which is why your assessments are so important. And so lady, she's very lovely. She's her rates between 130s and 150s at this point. And she also has a bundle branch block and a fib and you know, she, her saturations are also dropping to like 84%. And she's just talking to me, like, she's just like normal, right? Not in distress, but I let the team know, you know, hey, I put her on some oxygen. Um, her heart rate's still this. And they said, you know what? We're going to give some amio, and we're also going to put her on, on an amio drip. And that kind of correlates into what we're talking about here with AFib and dropping of two saturations, because those things can really wreak havoc if we don't catch them early enough and why AFib is so important and why other cardiac craziness is really important to control because patients can go south really quickly if we're not careful with, with these things. Um, whether or not we knew that he was gonna go into AFib or when he, whether he had AFib and then was gonna drop a sounds, we probably wouldn't have known that, right? Until it happened. Um, because sometimes when we see these medical patients, especially uh, they kind of, you know, swirl the toilet you know, so to speak. And then right when they're about to like be scrolled down, we, we bring them back up and we can do things for them because they've, they've spoken and here we are. And did I, I want to ask that this particular person have a laundry list of, of past medical history stuff? Um, just the COPD and hypertension actually. And he wasn't a smoker either, which I was expecting with COPD, but um, I'm not sure the cause of his COPD. It's also a really good point to bring up, you know, because we can often, we, oftentimes we think of smoking as the cause of COPD. However, did we ask if we smoke cigars, right? Sometimes people, patients will just assume that we mean cigarettes and not cigars, or 
nowadays we have to worry about vaping um, and other cigarettes that are electronic and not your traditional ones. Was there some sort of, you know, environmental part that played a part into this? Was he a factory worker? Um, did he work at TMI? Uh, did, you know, he work in the coal mining? All these things that may be a part of his life that we just don't know because we didn't ask. Um, so it's really important to get to know your patient's lives and what they've been through because it helps paint this picture of, of why we're here. And that kind of helps you as nurses accept diagnoses when they happen and be able to move on from it because sometimes you left, you're left questioning like why this stuff happened kind of gives you closure right um similar things of like why people die like i need closure on why they died because now i know you know if i'm safe it might be selfish to think that but it helps to relax whatever you got going on in your mind about why people progress pathophysiology pathophysiologically in terms of why their disease progresses. It just helps tremendously in that, in that aspect. So um, anything else with this particular person in case? Is anybody left? Did we do everybody? Rena's gonna be the last one. Rena's gonna be the last one. <laughs> so I picked a neuro ICU patient. Um, Ray! <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Sean did great too. <laughs> Killing it. Um, but I picked this one because I considered her like a living miracle kind of thing because she was diagnosed with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And I feel like when we learn about subarachnoid hemorrhage within class, we low-key think of like, okay, that's kind of a death sentence, but not the case for this lady. So like, that was really cool to see sort of thing. So I, my patient was a 62-year-old female who came in earlier in the year. She had a past medical history of migraines and smoking, which is going to be the big risk factor for this subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, but she basically came into the ED at another facility with the worst headache of her life, the telltale sign. Um, they did a non-contrast CT scan and uh, saw that she had a posterior communicating artery aneurysm that burst. So PCOM. Um, she was given mannitol to decrease her ICP and she was intubated and then transferred to uh, the med center. Um, so when I went to go see her with my nurse, I think it was like a week or so after that initial uh, in minutes, but she was alert to her name. Uh, so she was responding to her name and, but only name and pain stimulus. Kind of thing and she but she was able to follow commands unilaterally on the left side so she was able to like wiggle her left toes and squeeze with her left hand but the issue of when we came in for that shift was that her response was decreased compared to yesterday because the previous day she was making progress on her right side of showing like following commands but that wasn't the case today so the response was decreased which was heartbreaking but to me, watching that as a student, I was also like, whoa, that's still really amazing, though, that she's still able to follow commands, at least on one side kind of thing. But she was still cut to Kipnik in the 20s and 30s. She was on CPAP 40%, um, had an OG tube, fully catheter, continuous diarrhea. So it was a lot of just continuous uh, cleaning her up. Um, plus two radial pulses, but plus one pedal pulses kind of thing. But what struck me with this case specifically was that one, I thought she was pretty young to be having a subarachnoid hemorrhage at 62 years old. Two, 
as a student and walking into the ICU room, like it can be really exciting just to see like all the different machines because we're not exposed to that regularly on uh, typical med search floors. But her room was just decorated with pictures of her family. So it was very obvious walking in like this woman was very much loved by her family sort of thing. And that just kind of humanized the entire situation for me a little bit more. Because like as a nursing student, you're like, yeah, this is so cool. Like I get to see that this really neat diagnosis that like most people die from. And then you see that and you're like, wait, she's a mom, she's a sister, she's a grandma. And like my heart just broke and just kind of like re-centered me of like, she's a patient who's going through like the worst time of her life right now. And her family's probably really struggling with this because she is like so young. So while it was like a neat experience to like be exposed to a subarachnoid hemorrhage, it was still very gratifying of like, this is still a person and we should be doing everything we can to make sure that she's given the best possible chance to reach the highest quality of life that she possibly can at this moment in time. So with her treatment plan, the plan was to actually extubate her uh, the following Friday if she can. But if not, they were planning on putting in a trach. But either way, that was kind of mind blowing to me because again, in my mind with the subarachnoid hemorrhage, I'm thinking most patients die, but this one was making a recovery, like as like slow paced recovery and like that's the way it's supposed to go. But it was just very cool and mind blowing to see, like to be, to go in in the middle of her like progress and see that. I agree. I think it's really okay for students to walk into a room and think, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever because you're learning about it in in class and then you see these things happen and you get to a point where you're like oh I can see myself taking care of this particular patient right I can see myself doing these things I can see myself being excited over a ventilator or over drips or over the adrenaline rush that you get when you see people that are sick and need help it's just something that happens in a lot of students and it's and it's totally natural and it's okay to experience those things and i'm really glad that you also experienced the humanizing effect of it too in terms of well this person is also a member of society they are a mom they're a grandmom they're an aunt they're an uncle they're someone to someone else right and for them and for that family like we think it's awesome we're like this is great but for other people um some people have a really hard time kind of like acknowledging that and realizing that this person is someone else as well. So it's very, it's very much okay to experience those things at the same time. It's also really important that you acknowledge those in yourself, right? Um, and with any kind of patient that you see, I go back to, you know, probably one of our first couple weeks when we had a particular patient that needed things like ASAP was decompensating, bled into their head, needed a whole bunch of stuff. And we were all kind of like excited, but we were all like, this is still a member of society and like had a son and had a family and all these other important people, you know? Um, so those things, you know, I, I always love hearing about because feelings matter and realizing that other people, other people's, um, not, not just their lives, but their human, humanhood, humanhood, is that a good word? I don't know. Those things matter just as much as us getting excited over saving their life, you know? Um, 
it's crazy to me, it, this is me being in neuroscience for a, a very long time, that I was once scared to learn about subarachnoid hemorrhages. I was like, no way, this is this is crazy. It kills many, like uh, so many people, right? Because you think of like all these people and you just think of automatic death sentence when pe- somebody has a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Like that's just what they teach you in nursing school. And I'm not really sure why we do that <laughs> because when you see a lot of them, like I do, you know that you have to do X, Y, and Z. You know that there's certain things that, um, need to be done for this patient, such as procedures, such as medications given. We've seen people go back to IR to get intra-arterial drugs. Verapamil is one of them that helps reduce vasospasm. And I think that building knowledge over how we treat subarachnoids helps, helps decrease, you know, the myths and the, and the mystery surrounding diagnoses that we assume have this death sentence, but really don't, right? Yeah, uh, I can see that, I think. <laughs> That's why this case was just particularly cool because nursing school does kind of teach you that it's almost a death sentence and doesn't really go into the details of like, these are X, Y, and Z things that you have to do to manage it and to actually give the patient the best possible chance to recover from it. So that was really neat. Yeah. I mean, I will say, although 62 might seem young, we just had a 17 year old that had an aneurysm and did not make it. We think it might've been genetic, we're not really sure. I wasn't there that day, so I don't know much about it, but it's really wild to think that that can happen that young, you know, whereas 62, and you said that this particular person smoked, correct? Yeah, long extensive smoking history, but like only quit like within the past year kind of thing. And then had migraines, which is also really interesting because we don't know much about migraines um, and how they really impact the vasculature of the head and how they also impact all those neurotransmitters and all those chemicals up there too. It's just this, the, the vast unknown is migraines. We kind of know how to treat them. We can give lots of things. Like some people are put into like a propofol coma for a couple of days to help with their migraines. Um, some people are given lots of magnesium. It's kind of like one of those things. But I think that as we learn more about migraines, we're going to learn more about how we should treat them because I think they do impact things like subarachnoid a lot more than we, than we know of. In addition to smoking, right? Smoking is really bad too. Don't, don't do that. But, um, but migraines are definitely important as well. Um, the stool part is really unique. Uh, as we know, poop is one of those things that happens in the ICU. I always tell people, welcome to the ICU where you literally clean up poop every day of your life because that's part of being an ICU nurse, right? Um, it's great when we have people that poop. It is one of the most important things of your patients stay because if you don't poop, you're going to give them all the stool softeners and all of the suppositories. And it's just not a never ending thing. Two feeds definitely cause diarrhea um, as well as antibiotics. And C. diff is one of those things that we have to be mindful of and not hopefully not cause our patients, right? But also help treat. Um, But having somebody that moves their stools is a very good thing as much as we all hate cleaning it up right but it lets us know that that their belly is still working and not going to shut itself down it sounds like this particular person perhaps may have had a drain in their head yes uh, the external ventricular drain was placed mm-hmm. yeah and that is something that we now do for a lot of aneurysms um because of how we have patients that don't necessarily can control their own CSF as you will in their head. 
And I see them a lot with ACOM aneurysms, although we talk, we're discussing a PCOM aneurysm. So PCOM, just your posterior back of your head. ACOM is just your anterior. But certainly subarachnoids are tricky in that they can, if they have vasospasm, then that inhibits their ability to get rid of their CSF naturally. And so that's why we kind of put an EVD in as well as to monitor their head pressures. Because if you do develop vasospasm, which can happen between seven to 14 days after subarachnoid, sometimes it happens before that, um, you are at risk for increasing your head pressure and doing damage to your head. You can have ischemic strokes happen. You can have further bleeding strokes happen. It's just a whole chaotic picture in your head if, if we're not careful about it, right? So that's why we have all these rules now of how to take care of people. Anything that anyone has to say about this case as well? All right, I think we're done our case presentations. Fabulous job, everybody. Let's discuss what, what, where am I going with this? What has clinical been like for everybody in terms of the entire um, experience, not just this one that we went through, but what's it like as a student going to being a learner and then going to be an active learner in a clinical environment? I definitely say like a lot of clinicals up to you, like when you're with a nurse, like sometimes you're not with the most um, enthusiastic nurse because they're having a busy day and they can't take on a student or you're with like one of the greatest preceptors that you've had. But if you don't say like when they're about to put a Foley in, oh, can I do it? Or can you show me how to do this? Or can I try it? Some of them will just do it and think that you're not ready to do it or that you're not allowed to do it or that you just don't want to. So I think it's really important in clinical just to be like, hey, let me do this, let me try this. Anything that you wanna let me do, obviously within your school's parameters. But, um, and I also think it's like sometimes kind of hard because there are nurses, like we've seen a big difference between this hospital and our hospitals on main campus where the nurses are just, it's not a, a, as big of a teaching hospital. So they're not as um, enthusiastic about teaching you. And it's just like kind of about how you react react to them and how you kind of um, work with them and just try to make the most of it. Going off of what she said, um, like I know for me, one of the best ways I learn is if the nurse is doing something and she's like explaining it, what they're doing. Um, this is why we're doing this. This is how we do it, etc. But not every nurse is that way. So um, something I've found to be like very helpful to me is that like not being afraid to ask questions throughout the whole time if they're not explaining what they're doing um because if they're not I'm kind of just standing there like okay I know they're doing this but I don't know why and so I think that's the biggest thing like um up until this year I think I was like more hesitant to ask questions to them because I didn't want to be annoying but um, I think it's important to do that be annoying because if you're not annoying, then you're not learning, right? I mean, if, just just like y'all said, if you're not asking questions, because I think I'm, I think I might have mentioned this to y'all in the very beginning, is that we, as clinical instructors, we have no clue what y'all know, don't know, skills you have, skills you don't have, what you're gonna need, what you don't need. They don't give us like a list, and they don't even take inventory of like a list of what y'all don't know and do not know. We just know that you're going through sim, and you might have seen some things, and here we are, right? So being upfront about where you need assistance with is just as important as being as annoying as asking questions and, and knowing why. And if somebody is not willing to teach you, go find someone else. 
you know what I mean? Like go ask someone else that you're familiar with. I'm serious and ask questions and be annoying to them because they're probably going to be like, okay, yes, you don't understand this, but I'm going to teach it to you. You know, I'm going to help you, help you learn X, Y, and Z that, that you're going to want to learn from. That's excellent. One of the things that I found especially helpful in clinical and growing, uh, being assigned a new nurse is establishing right in the beginning of like, hey, these are my base skill levels right now. This is what I don't know. This is what I'm hoping to learn mm -hmm. with you. And I found out that like, if I just establish that conversation super early within the shifts, the nurses tend to be pretty responsive about that because now they know, oh, okay, this is your baseline. This is what we can do. And this is what I can help you with, which is super nice. And also like for me personally, like love you, Nicole, narrow ICU is not my jam. So okay. <laughs> you don't have to, it doesn't have to be your jam, right? was not my jam great learning experience though but that it was also a conversation i had to have with like the nurses that i uh was were assigned to just like hey i want to help as much as i can neuro icu is not my jam but i'm here to learn right so please teach and me. you're here to learn that neuroscience is not your jam yes and you don't know that until you're in an environment that exposes you to things to realize this is probably not going to be for me just like I babies and moms it's not for me right psych nursing not for me. As much as I see crazy people in my neuro ICU, right? There's a whole different like treatment parameters and like all the stuff, right? But it's really important to still throw yourself into the lions, shall we say, and learn that this really isn't going to be for me and owning that truth and moving on with it. You still have to, you still have to go through, I don't know how many hours we went through this semester of clinical, right? And hopefully it's been beneficial for everybody to realize where their strengths are, where their weaknesses are, and what to work on for your NCLEX. But you make a very good point at saying, you know, I signed up for this because I wanted a critical care environment, perhaps is what y'all did. And it's not gonna be like the traditional ICU. I don't even know what that means by the way, traditional ICU. But it's gonna be something that presses your buttons and helps you expand your mental ceiling, which is more important than I think actual clinical skills in a particular unit of the specialty, right? Because as long as you are pushing yourself and challenging yourself and doing something different, it's going to expand you into accepting challenges as, as they come to you. And that's the most important part is how do we accept challenges that come to us that like make us want to like strangle something, <laughs> but also know that, you know, that's what's pushing my buttons right now. And I'm going to move on from that. Right. Good stuff. Anyone else? I think another thing that's important is to be confident in your own abilities because you can be the difference between a patient having a good or a bad outcome. Just, you know, listening to lungs, you might, everybody's like, oh, you know, maybe I don't hear anything. So I'll just pretend like I do. You might not actually be hearing anything. So bring it up to your nurse or like in my experience, if we had a patient for my capstone where I was there Friday and Sunday, I wasn't there Saturday on Friday, she was screaming out a ton. And then on Sunday, she was relatively quiet, but was like, I was asking like, oh, did she not sleep well the night before? Like what happened is no, she slept great. Like this week, so I would go in there and she became like a little less responsive, but because the nurses were with her, they kind of noted like, just like, oh, you know, she's getting better. I was like, but when I went in, when you go from the polar opposite of screaming to now it's getting difficult to wake her and get her attention, have her ask her answer questions. I brought it up to my preceptor. I'm like, hey, this seems a little off. Ended up being a whole issue. She had to go back down to neurosurgery. They ended up having the attending come and assess her because they know. So to be confident in your own abilities and 
even if you notice something, bring up your so even if you don't know for sure what you think you have, talk to a nurse, talk to your instructor, and help. they'll clarify it and they'll be like, okay, maybe this is something or maybe it's nothing. Like maybe that's normal for this patient. So being confident is important. That is that is like right on the money, Sean. Love it. Anyone else? How was the impact of COVID for y'all in terms of clinicals? Um, what what was that like moving from because I think some of you were doing a virtual clinical, correct? So how was that for you moving from actual in-person clinicals to virtual clinicals to coming back to in-person clinicals? For me, um, I didn't necessarily want to go virtual, but just because of my circumstance, I had to. And the actual experience of as much as I would have loved being in person, I actually gained a lot from doing these case studies virtually, um, like a ton of critical thinking, a lot of like just going through case studies and going through scenarios that you don't see in clinical because not everyone's like going to be your textbook perfect patient who um, has all the things going wrong. Um, so I found that it was pretty helpful with clinical thinking, but critical thinking, excuse me, but at the same time, it was hard not being in person, especially your senior year when this is like when it all starts to get put together and you wanna be confident going into your job. So coming back this semester, like really helped me feel finally like confident. Okay, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to move on to my next job. I think if I wasn't in person this semester, I'd be a little more scared um, and a little more nervous to go into that setting. So I'm really glad I was able to come back. Um, and the neuro ICU in general is just a really great place to learn. And I'm glad I was able to be in this unit as well. That's wonderful to hear. Uh, my experience with COVID was it felt like almost like a little bit of a setback as far as in-person skills. Mm -hmm. And also like your nerves. Like everyone remembers that first day of clinical where you had those nerves like, okay, I gotta take care of a patient. We may have the shakes. My first day coming back to in-person clinical again, I had those shakes again. I can remember trying to open up a deal. I can see my right like thumb just shaking. Like, okay, you're just opening something like, chill. <laughs> that was a lot easier to come off of that because again, it was just getting back on the bike and moving, but it definitely felt a little bit like a setback. Now we did have a good experience with the uh, case studies, but I think the best learner is just through experience hands-on. Mm -hmm. So luckily Penn State did have a good system in place, but it doesn't replace, I think, fully the in-person aspect. Yeah, I agree. I think in person, it was so hard to move from in person to virtual. And then you get you get anxious as an instructor too. You're kind of like, we want people here because there's nothing that replaces human contact and human interactions and hearing people screaming at each other and hearing people being frustrated, you know, frustrated, and, but also hearing people, how physicians talk to family members or how nurses talk to family members and how physicians talk to nurses and all this other important stuff that I think those things are, are super important, you know, to realize, but also to kind of work through. Yeah. Anyone else? Um, um, I can talk. Oh, go ahead, Caitlin. Thanks. Um, so I was only virtual in March of last year when like it all kind of hit. And I was virtual for OB and um, pediatrics clinical. And for me, like studying for the NCLEX and doing practice tests, like those are my weakest areas. And I think it's because clinical just like helps reinforce, like you can study something on paper all day, 
but it's like putting your hands on it and like seeing how the flow of being a nurse actually is and like understanding just like understanding how it all works in person is so much different than just being able to predict what will happen on paper because it's almost never the same it's like reading the nursing school textbook and then going and watching how it's so much different in person and um coming back um in the fall of this year was nerve-wracking like I remember feeling set back also like I haven't done this in a long time nervous but luckily like with Hershey the teaching aspect is really there and like we were I feel like I was able to overcome the setback pretty fast but my weakest areas are still in places where I didn't have in-person clinical personally so but it's really nice that you acknowledge that you know I think that's the one of the most important things as a student is to just accept what you don't know and and own that and then work on it although you might not be able to work on a lot of skills but you know that's kind of comes with whatever job experience you're going to get anyway um that I think that, you know, that will come in time. But certainly, I mean, I literally have thought about, you know, when, when we were in clinical and we saw, and we, we were in sim lab and we had the case of the alcoholic and the sexual Pharisees. And then the next week, you know, you can, you can learn all you want about that particular type of patient and all these things that might happen to them. But then when you're in real life situation and it happens, right? It was like this whole big thing going on that was way different than SimLab, right? I think everyone kind of felt that way um, because that's how it was, right? Everyone was kind of like doing their own thing and we have to get this person stabilized in X, Y, and Z. You know, it wasn't as easy as we're, we're going to take our time, you know, priming the blood and then we're going to call and uh, perhaps because that Sim patient was stable, right? But in real life, those things happen way quicker if esophageal varices is bursting. So that was a really good point to make, Caitlin. Go ahead, Lexi. I was just going to say that um, because of COVID-19 during my junior year, I was able to start my internship early, actually, because they needed help. And then this past semester, um, when there was an outbreak on campus, I I opted to go online again so I could work full time and do school online, which I think was a great great for me uh, personally, because it gave me that clinical experience in the department that I wanted to work in. And that my suggestion to any students, uh, COVID affecting or not, is to put yourself out there and get a job in a care position just to get your feet wet. It'll make you way more comfortable with patients and um, just interacting with staff and the interdisciplinary care team. I agree with that too, because when I went virtual, I picked up a job as an aide um, where I worked over the summer. And like, I had, this was the first time I was ever like on my own without a preceptor. And I know it's just an aid, but like I had a six to eight patient caseload. Um, and I was really able to like learn how to manage my time by myself, take care of patients without someone watching over me. Um, so although like, yeah, it's unfortunate I didn't have clinical. I had like so many more hours of just like basic patient care that's instilled in me. And like, I'm really happy that that happened. And I think you learn probably perhaps a lot about how to manage multiple patients at once. Yeah, right? exactly. Because the world of nursing is not the same in terms of patient nurse ratios. Um, it can be different wherever you are. 68 patients was my life when I first started my first job and now it's one to two, <laughs> way better, right? But still a lot sicker. So there's different um, paradigms to, to compare that to as well. But I think that that's an excellent point is that if you are in a a particular situation where you have a virtual experience, 
take advantage of that. And, you know, like y'all just said, if you can get a job working as an aide or working as something within where you're going to head to, that's just even better because you're going to not only experience a different health system, you know, or a different environment, different people, different patient populations, all that stuff. You can kind of take that in and use that for your NCLEX advantage. You know, there's nothing that's going to hurt you learning nursing by doing these things and, and stepping into different positions and stuff like that. Anyone else? For me personally, um, I was able to do in-person uh, clinical for the fall semester, but my issue was because it, in the midst of the pandemic and COVID-19, I was really struggling with like just being super angry about how everything was turning out with senior year and like super angry at uh, the rules that we had to follow for being like on campus and to be able to do in-person clinicals. I understand everything and all the decisions that were made. I get it, I'm not administration. I'm glad I didn't have to make those decisions. But as a student, I just remember battling with myself of just being like so angry all the time during fall semester that it was almost really difficult to go to clinicals and actually try to be in a positive mindset to learn because I was just angry the entire time. Mm. But luckily I was able to like, reset my mindset over winter break and take a deep breath and just like really reflect on like okay I can't have that perspective anymore it's not helping me and it's not helping me learn in a positive environment so coming back for spring semester in-person clinicals has been so much more positive for me I think that you express a lot of things that other students express all the time right and it it doesn't necessarily matter if it's a pandemic or if it's something else that has happened, something's going to trigger you, right? Because people have feelings and people, you know, don't like to be cooped up and they don't like to um, not enjoy their lives. I mean, that's just what it comes down to, right? And as students, you, you are put into a position of, this is what I'm used to on campus. This is what I like to enjoy. This has been my life for the last four years. All of a sudden to getting none of that, everything shuts down right? And we don't know what the future is going to be. And so, and I mean, I think I would be remiss to say that I didn't experience anger, right? As just a nurse in terms of everything going on and the people that wanted to say, no, this is fine. It's going to be fine. I don't know why I can't go to the bar and sit at the bar and have a drink, you know, and just enjoy life the way it was, but we couldn't. And I think it was also more frustrating that you know, this is the first pandemic we've all gone through since 1911, 1914, whenever the flu pandemic hit back in the day, right? So it's been a century. And probably the people that went through that are no longer living, right? Because that would mean that they would be ancient. But, um, you know, I don't think things were written down as much as they perhaps were now. And people experience a lot of things on social media, right? And, you know, that can trigger people and conversations. No one can have conversations on social media. Let's just start there, right? Everyone gets fired up. Everyone gets offended at somebody's sentence when it's not projected that way. And I think that a lot of things, you know, mixed into a lot of people's feelings, not saying that they were your feelings, just in general, what I saw in my experience, right? Um, so I think that moving forward, like a lot of time for me for healing, for, you know, kind of figuring out why people were so angry about this and why I was frustrated about this comes to just 
having a conversation with somebody in real life and not, you know, portraying things on the face space or the Twitters or anywhere else that you're going to have these online conversations, right? And opening that conversation to having real life talks with people. Thus is probably why I still do this pan- this podcast. But um, I think as students though, you know, from what we've heard was just, you know, everyone's just frustrated. It's your senior year, right? And now you're, and, and you can't even experience Penn State football because that went bye-bye, right? Or any of the other things that you probably want to do your senior year, but here we are. And, you know, it's going to be way different when you're an alumni going back to these things because of how it hit, right? So I'm glad that you were able to express that and also experience that because it's really important to get in tune with, with what you're feeling. And that's part of mindfulness. I don't know if you ever, if anybody practices mindfulness, get involved in it. It's, it's helpful. It's life-saving. You work through those feelings. You reset yourself just like Rena did over winter break. You take inventory about what you got going on, where your life is, that doesn't really matter in the, in the first place. And then you kind of move on from it because in the grand scheme of things, thankfully this, this was only like a year of life in comparison to X amount of years that y'all have left to live, which is great. So anyone else? Anybody have anything else to say about their time as a student, uh, as a, you know, in clinicals, anything? Um, I would just say like, this is pretty random, but just like going along how like I was offended by like my patient being mean to me and like, I'm so, like earlier on in clinical, like probably one of my first clinical experiences, one of the patients, like husbands due to like a miscommunication, like yelled at me. And I was like, for like, just, we miscommunicated completely. And I spent the rest of that clinical, like crying, not able to like, I was just so upset. I was like, I can't believe like what just happened. And so I think that's kind of like what helped me be okay with this kid being like, just saying mean things to me. Cause I, you like learn after one time, like, okay, like it's really like, they're in a tough spot and you have to understand that. And it's like not personal to you. So like, I would just say like to anyone, like who is going to be in clinicals as a new nursing student, like you're going to have that moment where they're going to be like, you're going to be shocked and you're going to be upset and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe someone just yelled at me. What did I do wrong? But it really like, it's going to happen to you almost like every day of your shift. And, and it's okay because it's not at you and you have to know that they're just in a really bad time and you have to be sensitive. So, yeah. I would also say it's okay if you feel like you don't know anything. I feel like a lot of us feels like we don't know anything. And it can, uh, not feeling like that can be extremely overwhelming, but that's just the kind of thing where you take your little mental reset with yourself in clinical, take your deep breath and just remember, I'm here to do my best. And as long as you go in with an attitude of like, I'm here to learn, I'm here to do my best you're going to make it through clinical and the rest of nursing school just fine because everyone's going through that. Being prepared can lead you to like the best clinicals. I mean, you can like prepare for so much, but still knowing, like having your papers, having everything, knowing knowing the steps you're gonna take can lead you to having a smoother clinical and better learning experiences. And then again, if something else is going on, like say they're being transported, see if you're okay to go, ask. The worst they're going to tell you is no. So ask questions, ask if you can watch things. 
They're only going to tell you no or the answer. Anyone else? All right, y'all. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast, Alexi, Isabel, Rena, Jaden, Kaylin, and Sean. I really appreciate it. Our listeners are going to appreciate this. And I'll send you all this episode once it's like finalized and published and stuff. I don't know when that's going to be, but hope to see you all on this podcast again, hopefully as alumni. And you can share your experiences as what the hell you're doing with your life, probably a year out, right? I have to get in touch with a bunch of other students, but thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.